Hi investors, this is Danny with Investorly. At Investorly, we empower you to invest early in your financial future. We recently launched A Conversation With, our new audio series on Twitter. In this debut episode, we welcome the one and only Chainlink God and learn about his beginnings in crypto, how he became the community ambassador for all things Chainlink, and his insight on the future of the blockchain ecosystem. Subscribe to the Investorly newsletter to stay informed of upcoming episodes, and we hope you enjoy today's conversation. Yeah, and it looks like we have the man, the myth, the legend, the CLG Chainlink God is here, isn't he? Hey guys, how you guys doing? Very good, very good. It's great to have you. Are you coming Absolutely. from the metaverse? <laughs> In some form or another, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> That's basically what this is. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to kick it off with the very first question, and uh, I want to know, what happened to the gravel? Did you rake it over onto the neighbor's driveway? What happened, Chainlink God? Yeah, so I'm, I'm still I'm still have my gravel. It hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> okay. It's just fine. I just find that NFT space uh, is very entertaining. And so Gravel really played into the Gravel coin meme, which is like an OG meme in the community. So, yeah, still still keeping that in my, my, uh, my driveway. I haven't moved that. <laughs> that was a great, great opener. I'm sure, you got a, I'm sure you got a manicure every few days. It depends on how much <laughs> you drive on it. Yeah, I mean, I got like five shovels. So, you know, just moving it from one spot to another just so I can look at it. Sometimes oh. I just walk out there and stare at it. Man, counting your coins and raking your gravel, nothing better than that. Yeah, exactly. It's a dream. Uh, okay, awesome. I, I do want to mention that I, I had a second there to, to take a quick look at, uh, at the NFTs in your, uh, in your wallet, and there was quite a number of them, actually. So, this, you know, COG is an OG when it comes to the NFTs, clearly. Um, but but we, we really want to get into uh, so much... Uh, to know from you, and I just want to give a, a little bit longer for just a, a just a number of people. You could see the space filling up, so I want to make sure everybody is able to join us. Uh, it, again, I just want to reiterate, as a lot of people have uh, joined us uh, over the last you know sixty seconds, that if you're listening uh, and you want to ask questions, we'll definitely open up the sta- the stages and bring everybody up uh, on the space uh, towards the end. Uh, it'll just make it for a cleaner conversation. Uh, but if you have a question and you don't feel like you want to come up on on stage per se send a dm to either myself or danny we can also ask that question for you so both uh, options are available uh and again uh, this is just a fantastic chance to learn more about uh hopefully chainlink god himself uh and also about investing early uh you know, community standpoint and so that was a great uh a great you know Light, light in the mood question from Danny and Danny, do you want to, do you want to take it now uh, as we move away from the gravel? Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, Mike. Um, so yeah, the first uh, serious question that I have for you, Chainlink God, um, you know, obviously we're going to dive really deep into, into Chainlink link tokens. Um, but I, I want to first start talking about you and how you got into this, the blockchain space, how you got into the crypto space. Um, when did you start? Were you, you know, a, early teenager? Uh, were you a coder? Uh, take us take us way back in the beginnings of Chainlink God. Yeah, sure. So this this was like late 2017, early 2018. So kind of at the time, I was mostly just a gamer, and I kind of just saw GPU prices exploding and kind of just started digging into that, saw how you can run a program on your computer where money just kind of prints out of it. And so I have more of a kind of computer science-oriented uh, approach to things and just kind of that's what I've been studying. So that's kind of the angle I took to things. 
So I kind of just ended up diving into crypto from kind of a first principles perspective, kind of diving down to the deepest layer to the cryptography and then kind of working my way back up. So yeah, it was about like early 2018, which was like basically right at market peak, but that's just kind of when I got interested in it. And that's when everyone was talking about it at the time. So that's, that's kind of the angle that I took when I first came into the crypto space. Okay, nice. And was there, was there one person that kind of, you know, taught you? There wasn't anyone specifically. Uh, like, know, um, was it news or something? Yeah, it was mostly just kind of media and then things I kind of saw on difference talking about GPU prices. So like there wasn't like a single mentor or evangelist per se, but I definitely heard about it in the media and then kind of started digging it to my own and kind of started diverting my way more towards Ethereum and kind of what Vitalik talked about and then eventually so forth onto other projects after that. Okay. What was the first coin you ever bought or token? So probably Bitcoin. I think that's like everyone's first step into crypto. But it wasn't very long until I basically moved straight into it and then kind of went into all the different, you know, normie shit coins that exist before I like fully grasped an understanding of the space and what kind of what was actually adopted and being used. So definitely spent more time in Ethereum than anything else that kind of early stage. That's yeah, I agree with that. That's I think everyone kind of starts out at Bitcoin and then you kind of bleed over into other not necessarily bleed, but you kind of merge over into uh, exploring the space and understanding more about just the blockchain space and how big it is. And um, that's a, it's a good one. Yeah, I think everyone's pretty much started with, with Bitcoin because for most people that's Bitcoin synonymous with crypto, basically. So that's where everyone starts. And then they start going down like the top 10, top 100, looking at those projects. Yeah, that's, that's I'm going to chime in here because that's a fantastic point. And I actually want to further that specific uh, concept of sort of everybody sort of gets into crypto through Bitcoin. I think that's going to change in the near future, maybe in a year, two years with the way that the space has evolved and how Ethereum has obviously uh, done a done a, a, an impressive job of uh, gaining even more traction and especially with the merge potentially coming up and how that goes through. I mean, do you think there's a point in time where people will come into crypto separate of even understanding that it starts with it started with Bitcoin? I think there's kind of two answers and they're a little contradictory, but I think that for most people, Bitcoin is what they know. And even when there are other aspects, there are other projects, I think they'll always kind of enter in from the crypto perspective through Bitcoin. And I think even if and when, you know, something like Ethereum flips Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin will still kind of have that mind share with people. But at the same time, what we've kind of seen with NFTs is that a lot of people have entered like a side door into crypto where they don't get into it through Bitcoin, but they get through it through NFTs because their favorite artist or their favorite influencer or whoever starts minting and talking about NFTs. And that's how they get into crypto. And usually they go more towards Ethereum or Binance. So I, th I think there's kind of two angles. If you come into it with just crypto in mind, usually you come through uh, Bitcoin and then maybe make the switch to Ethereum. But if you're coming through NFTs, then you can really just sidestep Bitcoin completely if you're not into the more financial aspect of it yeah the uh the nfts are, are just a fascinating period of time with the side the side entrance through sort of nfts and the communities and speaking of communities let's uh let's sort of tie in with what you kind of mentioned uh about diving in from bitcoin uh through ethereum and then what was the what was your aha moment with Chainlink and sort of how did it all come about let's let's that starting it you know phase for you 
Yeah, so kind of a weird journey there. I used to browse Reddit for crypto information, but it was pretty terrible. Like there was no alpha, so to speak. So I kind of ventured my way into 4chan somehow, and there was a, a thread on Chainlink, and this was like mid-2018, before, way before mainnet, before the Chain.like website even launched. And there was this thread kind of just exploring more of the enterprise use cases of a Oracle-enabled smart contract, and it kind of broke it down in a business-to-business -business type agreement, kind of how each component of an agreement needs some kind of connection to the outside world, whether that's GPS location, market price data, uh, e-signature, signing connections to back-end systems. So like when you kind of look at a contractual agreement that exists today and you look at the components that are needed for it, almost every single component needs some kind of connection to the real world that exists outside of just the transfer of ownership, which blockchains can do natively. So that was kind of the aha moment of, in terms of just oracles and reading the Chainlink white paper and basically the public information that was available at the time, which was almost non-existent, was before the conferences. And I've just kind of, it just clicked that Chainlink was the only project uh, who have been working on this issue, this problem since like 2014 before Ethereum. So it kind of became clear that Chainlink was the best position to actually take on this Oracle problem and these more enterprise institutional B2B agreements to have all these connections to the real world. So it's it was definitely based on more of uh, the long-term vision of these hybrid smart contracts and all the different connections that they'll they'll inevitably need. Uh, Chainlink, uh, did you ever see, um, once you realized about Chainlink, um, were there any other projects that there were uh, just as much value in, in regards to the blockchain space? And also, how long did it take from your aha moment to begin investing in the Link token? I think in terms of other projects, what I really stuck to at the time was pretty much a little bit of Bitcoin, because digital gold, and then mostly Ethereum is kind of where I focused, because at the time there weren't really any dApps. Everything there was just other layer ones, and they didn't have any adoption really. Like no, every token was on Ethereum, so that's kind of just where I focused it. So kind of after reading the white paper is pretty much when I went into Link, and that's pretty the point in time where the, that conviction kind of grew. It was like a seed was, a seed was planted at that time, and so that's pretty much when I shifted almost everything I had in digitally. Yeah, that's amazing. Just hearing COG talk about how he shifted everything into Chainlink. I, I think there's probably a lot of people uh, in this space right now listening and myself included that wonder before you became Chainlink God, who were you? Were you just like smooth voice, man? Like what was the, what was your <laughs> handle and stuff? <laughs> yeah, before I didn't really, I wasn't like a personality or anything before then. Pretty much just a student basically learning computer science. And so I didn't really have a presence on the internet per se. And so if, if Chainlink didn't step into my life, then I probably would still be a student and still kind of focusing on that. So yeah, Chainlink was kind of a, a diversion of what I was doing at the time and planning to do, but I mean, I'm glad it happened. And so, you know, if Chainlink didn't come along, there would be no CLG and I probably wouldn't be on Twitter. And realistically, I'm not even sure if I would still be in crypto at this point, really. It's kind of like mind blowing to hear you say things like that. I mean, because I know I can speak for almost almost everybody in this space that we have definitely learned so much from you uh, 
on just a consistent basis and your presence and ability to break down very complex information uh, and sort of make it easily or easier to understand is one that is just uh, a really in, impressive and amazing attribute that uh, helps everybody in the Chainlink community. So that's that's pretty cool. I mean, do you have, do, do, were you always interested in sort of while being in sort of computer science, were you always interested in sort of breaking complex topics down for others to understand it easier? Is that just something that's come about with the Chainlink sort of evolution? It kind of just came along because like when I started my account, it was mostly just about kind of ship posting and being a part of the community. That was like early 2019, basically like a couple dozen frogs maybe. And so over time, I just had the, <laughs> I guess this native ability to just kind of break down these concepts for people. And it's kind of a, it's like a two, two-sided benefit where other people can learn about the content. And then by teaching other people, I can also learn about it myself because people will ask me questions. I'm like, ah, well, I don't know the answer to that. So then I need to go look into it so then I can go break it down for people. So, you know, it's it's a it, it's kind of one of those things where I just kind of found myself in this educational role, not really on purpose, but then just kind of happened because people kept listening to me. <laughs> and so I just kind of explained the way things work as I see them. And then people listen to that and they appreciate it. And I appreciate them, you know, kind of following, listening along. So it's, you know, it's not anything that was had like a premeditated goal per se, but just kind of a, I don't know, just an area I kind of found myself in, breaking down these concepts for myself and seeing questions on Twitter that I knew the answer to that I could break down for them because I've already you know, breaking it, broken it down to the first principles level. So it's something I just kind of found myself in that position of being an educational role. Well, that, that kind of leads me to my next question here. When, when did you feel comfortable enough to be, to, to you know, kind of name yourself the chain link God? Uh, when, when, was, <laughs> when was that moment? I mean, you know, uh, before that, you know, uh, talk about before that and then talk about what I think I got this and I got a really good grasp of, of the entire project. And and also, CLG, was it actually you that, that came up with that or was that sort of pushed on you at the start with some like a friend or did someone actually help create that moniker for you? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I just, I created it as a joke. Like I thought it was a cool name at the time. And like <laughs> I was, I had like intermediate understanding of this. This looks like a cool picture. This looks like a cool name. And then I kind of just pushed it together and then I kind of like filled the role over time. So like I never took it to, I never took it that seriously, really. But I guess over time I've kind of filled that role to now being the Chainlink God, the educator, kind of like the, the Oracle where people have questions about Chainlink and then they query me and then I return result back to them. So it's like, I eventually became a Chainlink node myself somehow. So like it kind of started <laughs> as a joke, but then like I filled that role and it just, you know, it works. It's it's probably the best joke ever. Uh, now that you know you sort of describe it like that, and 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 sort of querying information and results for you know the community is something you do obviously amazingly, and that brings us to sort of you know talking about uh, our recent smart contract summit, right? And you did. Uh, I mean, there was an absolutely dizzying amount of announcements. You did you know just a ridiculously amazing job of covering each literally uh, session and put out a 69 thread, uh, you know, kind of recap. And then, you know, a golden thread. I mean, I'm going to pin that, you know, here for anyone that's sort of joining us that wasn't familiar with that thread. But, you know, the question I think that Danny and myself have really just been beyond your ability to do that, but really what stuck out to you most and sort of, you know, what are you most excited about 
when it comes to what we learned at this year's SmartCon. Yeah, I think I might have gotten like carpal tunnel from that. I was <laughs> typing a shit ton during that event, but as much as I could, because I knew never, not everyone could watch it. I think that I think there was a lot of events that were a little bit kind of slept on because it happened during a lot of other things happening during uh, that time frame, EIP fifteen fifty nine and whatnot. But I think there are a couple key ones that happened that a lot of people recognized, like uh, Chainlink working with uh, Google Cloud to bring NOAA weather data onto the blockchain so that that weather data can end up being used for like parametric insurance agreements like Arbol or Etherisk. I think that bringing that high quality weather data on chain kind of shows how Chainlink is much more than price feeds in that aspect where it can actually power financial agreements that go beyond speculation and more towards hedging risk for or creating financial products for people who didn't have access to any financial products previously. And I think there was a bunch of others as well. Swisscom, largest telecommunications provider in Switzerland, now running a chain link node along Deutsche Telekom, who's the largest telecommunications provider in Germany. Uh, and I think like the, the highlight of the event really was uh, CCIP, so the cross-chain interoperability protocol, which was announced at the event. I think that cross-chain or multi-chain is becoming kind of an inevitable reality. And so I think there needs to be some type of universal standards. You don't have to hop between bridges and in a way where you can stay on one chain and interact with contracts on every other chain without actually having to go to that chain yourself. So I think that CCIP was like very unexpected at the time, but I think it's something that's something that the chain like infrastructure is like perfectly set up to accomplish, given it's already blockchain agnostic. People are already using it for price feeds and VRF and keepers. And so just kind of moving into this cross-chain space is kind of an inevitable next step. And I think beyond CCIP, I think a lot of people were hyped around the, the SWIFT talk. From that one, what was interesting is talking about how you can effectively use existing public key infrastructure that SWIFT basically created in the 70s and use that to bootstrap uh, enterprise adoption of smart contracts. So you just keep the same messaging, you keep the same interfaces, but then you just change out the back end for smart contracts. So I think that's an interesting concept that we don't necessarily need to replace everything about the traditional system, you know, just the parts that are broken, but keep the parts that are already established and have a network effect. I think that's it's an interesting concept that many people didn't take into account. But yeah, there, there, there's, there was so much at SmartCon and that, that thread of threads that are linked is a uh, kind of breaks down <laughs> most everything. I couldn't, I couldn't cover everything because there was two stages, but I tried to cover as much as I could. Uh, I'm going to request a Chainlink Angel to maybe help you out or something as an assistant, if that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I just used Linky as my assistant, but he's not very good at it. So I'm okay. going. Uh, well, you mentioned CCIP, and I, I mean, I was watching when Sergey talked about it, and then he brought on Mashinsky. Uh, I mean, my floor was or my jaw was completely on the floor at that point um, because it was it's just like all these blockchains just communicating basically seamlessly and obviously it has room to grow but um that was definitely my you know most amazing point there but it, it kind of brings me to the, the next topic there since they integrated with celsius which is a, a c5 platform um how do you feel about c5 platforms and i know they they range uh and then how do you obviously we know how you feel about DeFi protocols but c5 platforms and then uh are there any DeFi protocols that you're insanely bullish on yeah, I think there's kind of a multi-pronged answer. I think that's, I think CFI has its point of, in the sense that it abstracts away complexity. So a lot of the new users who join the space, 
don't understand and don't want to use private keys, deal with managing nonces, gas fees, all these different more nuanced um, aspects of interacting with a blockchain, but still want to be able to access generated from DeFi. And so kind of these CeFi Celsius, they are admittedly more centralized and custodial, but they can be they can leverage some of the benefits provided through blockchains like the higher yield. So I think that's it's not something that's for everyone. If you want to, you know, hold your own keys and have your own custody, you should always have that option. But I think that having the ability to use a custodian is, I think, uh, it should at least be an option for those who don't want to dive in right away. And it is especially useful for more institutional entities who are more regulated or need to take private key security more into account and would rather try a custodian rather than handling it themselves, which is a process they may not understand at all. And could be worse than not using a custodian. So I think they both have their have their their place here. I think that in terms of more DeFi, I think that kind of the cornerstone DeFi blue chips, it's it's kind of a an expected answer, I suppose. But I think the things like Aave and synthetics, I think those are like the foundational layer of DeFi, like the the lowest layer, the liquidity layer. And I think that as those protocols continue innovating and they deploy in layer two and on these other chains. I think that all of the applications that are going to get built on top of Aave, on top of Synthetics, on top of Yearn, all these different protocols, I think that we can't even imagine what those protocols are going to uh, provide users or how they're going to be composed and deeply integrated into each other. But I think that those lower layer building blocks, so to speak, I think those have the greatest potential to basically provide the greatest amount of access to a financial ecosystem while enabling developers to build their own applications on top of it, which creates like a multi-layered network effect effectively. So that's, you know, there's always opportunity for DeFi protocols to kind of be uh, either like vampire attack or kind of uh, replaced by another. But I think at this point, the network effects, the liquidity and just the adoption of these lower level DeFi protocols makes them a relatively risk reward ratio type bet pretty, pretty safe. I think in that in that sense. So that's kind of the main part of what I'm kind of betting on. Other besides like layer ones and oracles, but I think that these foundational DeFi protocols have a great opportunity. Well, I think I think you make some great points there. And what stuck stuck out to me is um, you know kind of the the awkwardness or wonkiness, I guess, of of the world of DeFi. How there's you know you have to download a wallet, and once you have a wallet, you have to connect it on your computer. Uh, and then there's gas fees. Well, what are gas fees? And so it's the kind of user interface that's a little awkward at first, and it can be a little scary if you're just making your first few transactions. Um, and that's uh, what you said, you know, CFI has a place for institutions and that and for beginning investors um, or uh, token or coin holders. Um, so with CFI, I want to ask you about Nexo. What do you think of Nexo? I don't necessarily want to say too much, but I would say out of all the CFI services that exist, Nexo is one I wouldn't touch with a 12-foot pole, per se. So I think if you were going to go with any CFI service, I would go with a more trusted one, either like BlockFi or Celsius. I think that Nexo has too much shading connections around certain entities that uh, haven't exactly been aligned with the ecosystem and particularly not aligned with Chainlink. So I'll basically <laughs> I'll leave it at that for now. That's it. That's a good uh, yeah. answer, actually. I I was. Uh, it seems that there's a lot of shadows that have not been brought to the light for Nexo. 
Yeah, and I I think I could even further. That's a good question, Danny. I want I was going to ask uh, just to get a preliminary thought on just sort of the C5 platforms because we talked touched on Celsius quickly. Uh, you know, the Nexo sort of connections between the Zeus Capital from last summer through what we've seen recently. Uh, you know, I, you know, I know at Investorly we sort of talk about staying away from Nexo. So it's it's just interesting to hear sort of what you've said here uh, in the God, and we'll move here in something that I know Danny. Uh, is is very curious about and something that you specifically CLG have been uh, really really abundantly talking about very recently and that would be Avalanche right so can you sort of break down wh- while you've been dropping breadcrumbs around AVAX and Avalanche and we're seeing that pop up I'm sure there's a lot of interested uh, listeners that could could benefit from hearing maybe some, ex, you know, expanding on your excitement and sort of the potential for the crazy APRs that and APYs we're seeing. Uh, do you want to give the the community a little bit more about that? Because even myself, which uh, isn't very aware of this uh, platform. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not nearly an expert on Avalanche as I am more of Ethereum and Chainlink, but from what I've kind of seen, what I've researched is that it has a very interesting consensus algorithm where it's more more probabilistic uh, subsampling where instead of every no- every other node, it's just each node querying a couple other nodes and then you repeat that process until you have a high enough assurance. And so through that mechanism, you can really scale a network up until millions of nodes all concurrently working together without meaningfully increasing hardware requirements. So that's kind of like the baseline technical aspect of why people are interested in Avalanche plus these more uh, subnets. We can really think of them as side chains. So kind of a uh, a blockchain of blockchains, in a sense. And I think what we're really seeing with Avalanche is that it's almost like it's its uh, BSC or Polygon moment where everything kind of happened at once where we saw the launch of Chainlink Oracles on Avalanche. So things like BenQ and Aave can launch. These more lending markets could launch on here, which are needed for liquidity. And then we saw this $180 million kind of token subsidization program to kind of fuel more liquidity into the ecosystem. And so Combine that with kind of a very seamless and easy to use bridge, we're kind of seeing this kind of influx point where a lot of people are moving their funds over in order to effectively enter uh, a DeFi summer 2021 that's not necessarily taking place on Ethereum, but on Avalanche because it offers the ability or it, it provides a different approach to scalability than other layer one blockchains. And we've, you know, a lot of people are kind of already burned on, on Ethereum fees, they're kind of tired of it. And Avalanche is kind of a, a different approach to take if you want to interact in the DeFi ecosystem. And so when you kind of combine all these parameters together, we're kind of effectively seeing what we saw in 2020 on Ethereum's uh, DeFi summer moment. And so we're really seeing that for Avalanche. And so that's what a lot of people are getting excited about. And so I think that's, you know, you, you look into the connection between uh, Emin and Ari Jules from IC3, both co-directors and you know, the, the products that they've been able to push out, it's not just vaporware, but it's actual networks that are working today. I think that's, I, th- I think it has some amount of potential to provide an alternative ecosystem of DeFi protocols that is more decentralized than other, you know, <laughs> BSC type chains that have a limited amount of permissioned validators. So I think it's just, I think it, from a technical perspective, it's interesting. And from a more, you know, incentives and ecosystem perspective, we're really seeing growth in that aspect. So. I, th- I think it's definitely a project to, to continue keeping your eye on. Really evolving quickly. I mean, just the, the token itself has gone up like 300% in over a month so, or less than a month. Um, 
And what do you see as the, uh, the, the security or the risk involved um, with Avalanche and holding any tokens with Avalanche? I mean, there's always the usual risks if there's an unforeseen network consensus bug or if there's a smart contract bug on the application layer. Uh, those aren't really unique to Avalanche at all, but they do exist for every platform. You know, there's always the potential for rug pulls or any kind of uh, manipulation of protocols that aren't entirely secure. Though, you know, those are always risks that are going to exist and aren't particularly unique, but they are risks to be aware of that when you're entering a new environment, that if you don't fully understand it and you don't have the full transparency, then you may be entering yourselves into risks that you don't necessarily understand. So, you know, kind of getting yourself educated before you ape in, you know, is generally going to save you in the long. You know, something can always go wrong. Anything could. But I think that the team and the professionalism has kind of really spoken for itself. And I think that the adoption is really like a reflection of that. I gotcha. Well, I, I think it's key to have the relationship with Chainlink regardless. I mean, that's just... You know, it, it just heightens the security overall. Um, so moving on a little bit, I wanted to ask you uh, something that maybe some of the Marines, uh, myself included, uh, need to learn a little bit more about. But uh, Arbitrum, what is Arbitrum and what's the relationship between Arbitrum and Chainlink? Sure. So Arbitrum is essentially a layer two rollup network. And so what that means is that it's basically attached to Ethereum. So all of the transaction data is stored on Ethereum, but it's executed off-chain in the Arbitrum network. And so basically that provides a, uh, a, a sizable amount of scalability gains because you're not computing anything on Ethereum, you're just storing a small amount of data. But through fraud proofs, you can prove if anything went wrong in the Arbitrum network. And so it basically provides nearly Ethereum level security at 10x to 100x scalability effectively. So that, that's why people, why everyone's excited about Arbitrum. And so kind of the connection between Arbitrum and Chainlink is in a lot of ways common to other chains in the sense that a lot of applications on the Arbitrum network fundamentally couldn't deploy like Aave if there wasn't a secure Oracle solution like Chainlink operating. And so effectively with Chainlink being blockchain agnostic, what we really see is that Chainlink continues its role in basically providing the infrastructure for applications that already exist on Ethereum and use Chainlink to switch over and deploy to Arbitrum and still rely upon the same Chainlink oracles that are required for their infrastructure. And so I think beyond that, which we see with a lot of chains, is that uh, Ed Felton and Ari Jules, kind of going back to him, there's kind of a tight connection there in terms of MEV, where they really take a stance of that we should mitigate MEV and prevent front running and uh, sandwich attacks wherever possible. Ari was one of the co-writers of the Flash Boys 2.0 paper. So they're very aligned on that subject. And what it kind of seems like from my perspective, and it's a little more speculative, but I think Chainlink FSS will likely play a significant role in the Arbitrum network to mitigating MEV. So transactions are ordered by first in, first out, and are encrypted before ordering so that none of the validators can uh, you know, see what's happening in front run, even if they were malicious. So I think in that aspect, I think the Chainlink and Arbitrum team are quite close, and I think there's a lot of synergies there, and so especially in the FSS aspect. So I'm, I'm very excited to see Arbitrum launch at the end of this month, and I'm hopeful that a lot of a lot of projects will continue deploying there. Yeah, I mean, it has a lot of promise. Um, and also uh, what you talked about there, the transactions that can make it completely tamper-proof, um, which is a, a huge uh, bullish sign. Um, so with uh, so many... Uh, Link Marines, what they've what they've talked about is staking, 
And what exactly is staking when it comes to the, the link tokens? And why are so many Chainlink Marines so excited about, about staking? Yeah, so there's kind of two aspects. One is like the fundamental, you know, what, what does it provide? And effectively, staking is the act of Chainlink node operators taking tokens off the market, locking them up in a contract, and basically putting them up as collateral, which can be slashed if they misperform or don't report or do any kind of malicious activity effectively. And so it basically provides an additional layer of crypto economic security. There was a good blog post on the Chainlink blog not long ago that kind of broke it down into each aspect of basically how explicit staking works in the Chainlink network or how it will work when it's deployed. But kind of from a token holder's user's perspective, effectively why so many people are excited is that it's kind of the same in theory as like a Ethereum proof of stake where Chainlink nodes would effectively have to purchase and lock up link tokens, taking them off the market. And really, when it comes back to it, it's really supply and demand. So as the adoption of the Chainlink network increases, there needs to be more crypto economic security, which means that more tokens need to be locked up by nodes. And at the same time, users need to acquire link to pay those oracles for the oracle services. So it's effectively a reduced supply, increased demand, which is all pegged to network adoption. So that, that's like that's the main reason why most people really want to see explicit staking launched in Chainlink is because of this extra security and because it, it basically provides like a token sync for the link token. And it's, it's really a crucial part of the long-term economics of the link token. Oh, that's really good. Um, and do you see do you see staking? Where do you see staking happening um, in regards to is it, uh, you know, let's say the you know the node op um, would they need to, you know, uh, stake a separate protocol or, or maybe like a link pool or something like that? Would it, uh, how would how would the staking exactly be done, or where would it be done? So it, it would be done on a basically job by job basis. So there would be a job for the ETHUSD price feed. There would be a job for VRF. There would be a job for keepers. Job for all the different feeds. And so each node would need to stake into a specific job in order to get the right to basically join that job and earn revenue from it effectively. So it becomes like a right to revenue type token. And I think that in terms of implementation, I think we'll see node operators locking up the link they earn as revenue for the security. And I think what we'll also see is things like link pool will offer a marketplace where users can effectively lend their link tokens to existing chain link nodes and then earn a portion of the revenue that's kind of generated by that node. So, you know, it's all kind of the same effect of getting more tokens off the market into a state of illiquidity and are basically providing crypto economic security directly to the Chainlink network so it can continue growing more value, especially with the super linear staking impact where the amount of value secured can be quadratically greater than the amount of stake actually locked up. So it's really like a scalability solution in terms of security as well. Yeah, so we just we just kind of went over some really uh, important details around staking, how it can be done, where it may be done. But I think the the real strong question that uh, you know a massive amount of community members are wondering is, what's your take on time frame? I mean, when should we uh, legitimately sort of expect for this to really happen? I mean, obviously, right now, Marines are looking for different areas to earn yield, and we have all the different platforms, whether it's Yearn, Bancor, uh, you know, certain areas to earn yield on our tokens. But for staking specifically, I mean, we've heard this now for a, a significant amount of time. Any idea in your estimation when that would actually come to fruition? 
Unfortunately, I don't really have an answer here. I'm not entirely sure. I think that from my perspective, what I've kind of seen is that Chainlink basically provides what the users need. They cater to user demand. And what we're really seeing is an expansion of different Oracle use cases, kind of uh, providing all of the capabilities that smart contract developers need. So you know, day one, that was price feeds. Then it became VRF. And then we saw keepers for automation. And then now we're seeing cross-chain. And so as all these services expand and provide more value uh, to the ecosystem, that effectively grows Chainlink's network and that grows the fee pool that are available to Chainlink nodes. And so as those fees pool, fee pools grow, then when staking does launch, there can be a sizable amount of yield to actually generate by staking your link. And so I think it's kind of like a, a well-coordinated game, really. And I'm not, I'm not entirely sure on the timeline. I wish I had an answer for that, but I really don't. But I think that I think a key focus right now is basically accelerating Chainlink's network effects. So it, it basically continues being the dominant industry standard, not just for price feeds, but for every off-chain service, you know, that blockchains cannot natively provide. And then when the time is right, staking can be needed to basically boost the crypto economic security and grow scale chain link up into, you know, securing trillions of dollars in economic value. So I think it's kind of a well-coordinated game, but I don't necessarily have a, have a timeline on it. That, that's totally fair. I figured it's a, it's a good question to ask because I know everybody sort of wonders when that will be. One further question about the staking. Do you think, and you just obviously who can know for sure, but I, you know, do you think there'll be a minimum amount of chain link that you would need to hold for staking purposes? It's very different than a, like a blockchain, like Ethereum. You need to stake 32 ETH. That's the minimum and the maximum at the same time. Avalanche, it's 2000 AVEX. With chain link, it's very different because there's not a monolithic network. It's a like uh, a network of networks effectively. So each Oracle network is gonna have its own staking requirements. One network may have a requirement of a thousand link. One may have 10,000. One may not have a, a, a minimum at all, but the more you stake, the more fees you generate. So like it'll be like on a per job basis, but from like user's perspective, effectively they'd realistically be able to stake with any amount given that there's space available for them to stake to effectively. So it's, it's very different than a blockchain network structurally designed. And so that means that there realistically really isn't a minimum per se. Okay, that's uh, that's that's new information for me to, to to understand. I appreciate that. I just want to take a second here to to thank everybody for joining us here in our Investorly Twitter Spaces series with Chainlink God. Uh, if you guys have joined us in the middle of the conversation. We definitely will be putting this out in case you feel like you've missed the start. We'll be putting this out in the audio recording later once we get hold of that. So don't be worried that you missed anything. We also mentioned that we're gonna take some questions, which I have a bunch of questions in my uh, DMs already. So you can send them there. We're gonna start to ask Chainlink God these questions from you guys, but also uh, shortly we're gonna ask you to join us on stage and ask the questions yourself if you'd like to do that. So I just want you to know, I know I've been getting requests to join me, but just hold on a couple more minutes uh, and let's get some through some sort of rapid hitters here, Chainlink God, and some more fun ones. I, I definitely, uh, Danny and I both want to know for sure, are you, you know, you're feeling around sort of other blockchains besides Ethereum, uh, Solana, uh, and obviously tell us how you really feel about Cardano. Yeah, yeah so I think Solana, they're taking like a distinctly different approach where it's more higher hardware requirements because they're basically betting on hardware will scale the blockchain effectively, hardware improvements. And so I don't think there's necessarily per se a wrong answer to scaling a blockchain. It's just what do you want to optimize for? You know, not every use case is going to need tens of thousands of blockchain nodes. 
some may be fine with a smaller collection of kind of more uh, cloud provider type nodes running your network. You know, if you have a high speed uh, gaming application or a high frequency trading application, maybe you're okay with compromising on decentralization to get that extra speed. So I think that most networks have a place in some aspect. We've seen a lot of just kind of low, low effort EVM forks or just kind of interoperability protocols that really didn't go anywhere in 2017. So there's an entire spectrum. But I think that, you know, things like Cardano, I think historically my biggest gripe is like a lot of promise, but not much delivery. You know, it's kind of the opposite of what we see with Chainlink where it's very under promise over deliver. So that, that kind of just rubs me the wrong way. I think that if Cardano gets adopted and has, you know, eventually smart contracts and applications on it, then, you know, great. You know, there'll be hopefully users there and then they'll probably be chain linked anyways because, you know, useful smart contracts need secure oracles. So ultimately, in my view, as somebody who holds link and is kind of an evangelist for chain link, realistically, I'm a fan of Ethereum and that's where I store the most amount of my funds. But if any other blockchain achieves a greater network effect, then it's, you know, it's going to be fine because chain link, you know, extends every blockchain. It powers smart contracts on every block. So realistically, it doesn't matter what blockchain wins. You know, if, you're, if you have Chainlink, then you're going to be winning regardless because you'll be powering the entire DeFi ecosystem, gaming ecosystem, insurance, everything on those blockchains. So that's kind of the perspective I give. I may poke at certain blockchains here and there, but realistically, I think there's plenty of adoption to go around, realistically. Well, Chainlink got, I'm actually looking at a tweet from Charles right now, and he just announced that uh, smart contracts are coming in 2033. So we got some, <laughs> we got a couple of years. <laughs> but that that thread that you gave, I think it was last week uh, before Cardano, you're like, congratulations on smart contracts. And then it was a list of like 70 other things. <laughs> yeah, th yeah, that tweet was more about like, okay, you have smart contracts, but like that that's the first step, you know? You need applications, right. you need tools, you need users like... You can't claim you've won yet. You know, if you if you do win, okay, you're gonna have to take a couple hundred more steps to to achieve that. And NFTs that people actually want to buy, I think I think that's the one that stuck out to me the most. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh. <laughs> so uh, moving on, um, what besides Chainlink, what are some other projects that you're that you're really a believer in and bullish on? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's yeah. As much as like I evangelize NFTs, I don't step into that space too much. I was kind of a, an advisor and investor in Universe, which is in a sense like a decentralized OpenSea per se with interesting different kind of NFT swapping metrics on there. I think that's a pretty interesting one that, you know, the, the centralized exchanges for decentralized NFTs don't really make sense intuitively for me. But I think where I spend most of the time is just looking at DeFi protocols. So I look at what actually has traction. I think there's interesting different protocols that I may not be interest, uh, invested in, but I do always follow things like uh, Alchemix, where you can have basically uh, self-paying loans. You know, that that's the kind of thing that you just don't fundamentally see in the traditional financial system that's enabled through the power of composability by routing funds to another great protocol, Yearn, which aggregates the yield from the entire ecosystem. So I think anything that kind of goes into the composability narrative is interesting in my book because you know, you're not going to go very far when you stand alone, but when you're with a group of people, you can go very far effectively. So I think anything that plays into that, that more composability narrative is pretty interesting. But for the most part, when, you know, I look at long-term kind of holding, 
long-term holdings. Effectively, what I really what I really spend my time on is more DeFi foundational layers. So Curve, Aave, Synthetics, Yearn, those kind of things. And I think that anything that kind of boosts the growth of those, kind of like convex, I think those are interesting as well. So it's a large, a large amount of my focus is really on DeFi. I completely understand and I'm with you on that one. Uh, I'm going to push you up against the wall for a second. If there's one protocol you had to, to choose, which one would it be? Chainlink. Or like specifically DeFi. Oh, okay. <laughs> a DeFi protocol though, such as gotcha. maybe Yearn or or Bancor or something like that. Yeah, I would choose Aave. I think that would be like the clear answer, just because it's like the global liquidity layer. They are always innovating. Flash loans, uh, delegated credit. They're moving to different blockchains. I think that in terms of just pure innovation and security, it's really hard to be Aave especially because lending and borrowing is such a foundational aspect of the global economy. So I think that would be my, that, that would be my definitive answer. I think just, just a, a from, you know, if you're an amateur, I think just the user interface uh, wins mm. in a lot of ways versus the other, uh, so many of the other protocols, just the front end uh, user interface, not to mention like the Aave Pro that, that's coming very soon. So I, uh, I have to agree with you on that one. Yeah. I, th I think that their interface has always been really great, but I think, I, th I think I heard this from, I don't remember who, but that a lot of the liquidity and usage of Aave doesn't come from the Aave interface. It actually comes from other protocols. So that's kind of like the brilliant thing of DeFi is that you can keep the same interfaces. You can even have it be a, like a bank plugging into Aave as their backend system for liquidity, and then users can use whatever interface that they want. So I think that having good interface is good. But as, we, as, we, as we've seen with like Curve, having a good interface isn't strictly required in order to get a lot of liquidity. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of your, your answer with Ave and uh, nice question, Danny. And I definitely want to move towards some uh, fun ones, but I have one last one that's sort of, it's pretty topical right now. And what's your feeling around this whole crypto tax amendment and the conversation that's happened very recently with that? Do you think that has an effect, uh, obviously, on the entire uh, ecosystem, but more specifically Chainlink? I mean, do you think this affects things moving you know, offshore? I mean, what's your take on this whole tax amendment stuff with crypto? Yeah, I think that what it really shows is how fundamentally broken our political system is, that when you're able to shove in a basically crypto-related regulation into a completely un unrelated bill at the very last second and then reject amendments to it, I think that's something that shows that something is very systemically wrong. I think that, you know, it doesn't go into effect, I think, until like 2023, but I think there's kind of two paths where if it doesn't get amended, all we're going to see is crypto companies moving overseas and taking their tax revenue with them effectively. So it would have been like trying to regulate the internet away in the 90s. It wouldn't have worked and you would have just pushed all the internet te uh, tech companies overseas to go benefit other countries effectively. And I think that's realistically, because there are more a couple more processes to go through, I think it probably get amended. But I think that just to provide context, the issue isn't brokers paying taxes. The issue is classifying miners and validators and developers as brokers who don't have customers and don't have any capability of acquiring personal information of users who use their products effectively. So I think that they need to, the, the regulators need to fundamentally understand crypto first before they can ever consider trying to really slap down any major regulations on it is kind of my take. 
Thank you for that. That's something that's been just in and obviously I think there's a lot of uh, ambiguity about when it goes into effect, obviously down the road, but what's people's take on it short term. Uh, and, and so I really appreciate you with that, you know, kind of uh, information. I think it helps uh, community members sort of understand where that might get lead and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, we started this sort of conversation tonight around you know joking about you know uh sand and 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 gavel and uh gravel and um nfts and so just just seriously what's your sort of take on honestly right now nft mania but more more so nfts from a serious standpoint and sort of how they move forward yeah i think there's two perspectives short term everything is completely overheated in my opinion it seems like you can take some clip art put it through a filter launch ten thousand of them and then they're guaranteed to basically sell out. And I think that's when you have people saying you literally can't lose money, that's, you know, kind of a bit of a top signal for me. So I'm top, I'm just saying things look very overheated, but I think that doesn't diminish the value of NFTs. And I think really they're like a tokenized form of memes effectively. They're they're like tokenized culture in effect. And so, you know, that's kind of why we see Visa buying a crypto punk and putting that on their books, is they're effectively a way to signal and bootstrap different communities and provide an avenue for certain artists or certain uh, entities to generate more revenue from their digital works that would have been previously impossible or had to go through a gatekeeper. So I think that we'll see a lot more real world use cases, NFTs like tokenized deeds and different mortgages and different uh, different non-fungible assets we already know today. But I think from like the cultural digital art perspective, I think there are a lot of foundational pieces that will stay like CryptoPunks. But at the same time, there's a lot of low effort garbage at the same time. You know, it, it, right, it reminds me too much of like 2017 ICO era. And that's not, you know, not a great feeling to have. Yeah, that's that's true. That was sort of my, uh, my first take with crypto was the ICO era in 2017, really. So yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully if you're in the, in the spaces right now, be, be, be smart, obviously, uh, you know, there, anyone can lose money. So I appreciate that, but just one more when it comes to the NFTs, and this is something I've seen, you know, come from your account, uh, you know, a considerable amount, I guess, over the last month or so, what's the, what's the connection with you and sort of your interest in polymorphs and why is it that that's the prod T perspective? It seems like you're sort of kind of aligned the most with, I think that would be, you know, an intriguing answer to hear. Yeah. Polymorphs was an interesting one because it started out as non-fungible Pepe's and that's kind of when I joined. And then, uh, Matt, the creator of Pepe, basically DMCA'd the project and took it down. And so they ended up having to pivot. But what they pivoted to is pretty interesting in my mind. Basically, decentralized uh, OpenSea and more of like a social media platform for NFTs. And so, you know, you can have your opinion on the on the how the NFTs of Polymorphs look. But I think the underlying technology and the platform that they're actually building, I think that has more potential that aligns better with the actual ideals that we have with NFTs, where you don't go through a centralized uh, uh, exchange where they can basically arbitrarily censor different uh, different projects, different collections. So I think in that aspect, you know, I'm watching a lot of different NFTs, but Universe is interesting in that they're building more of a decentralized, more DAO-driven community marketplace. Okay. That's uh, that's fascinating though. I, I didn't know that about polymorphs. I know that you hold a considerable amount. Uh, so it's just that's a curious way uh, and, and unique take. Uh, have to look into that myself. 
Uh, Danny, I know you wanted to ask a question. And after you ask a couple of questions, I've gotten a, a considerable amount of questions for you, Chainlink God. In my messages, I'm going to start to ask some for the community and then bring up some people. Is that good with you? Yeah, perfect. That works. Okay, great. So, Danny, go for it. All right, Chainlink God. So, because you're the community and you just drop daily alphas uh, or multiple daily alphas, um, you're obviously very well versed in the crypto and blockchain space besides just Chainlink. Have you had job applications, companies reach out to you, um, wanting them to work for your team? Nobody that's reached out to like work for me, more so them reaching out either to build their project, show their NFT, or just kind of, uh, kind of, kind of see how I can help their project effectively more of like an advisorship. So I haven't seen anyone asking to join my team because I don't really have, it's just like a frog, but <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting question. Maybe, maybe in the future we'll see that. I know some NFT people have been reached out to by different corporations to basically, uh, query their brain. About NFTs, and I think that as Chainlink goes mainstream, I think it's probably likely that the same thing will happen here, where I'll get pinged by different entities wanting to know about oracles and DeFi and that kind of thing. So, I, I think it's completely inevitable. And you know, by the way, if they if there's a, a mainstream article that comes out and they talk about Oracle Network, so they talk about pretty much everything that Chainlink does, they never mention Chainlink, but that will definitely change in the near future. Um, but speaking of Chainlink, uh, where do you see Chainlink's uh, or the link, link token price in the next couple of years? And not only the price of it, but where do you see uh, Chainlink progressing and what they're uh, able to evolve to do? Yeah, I don't want to like speak on price predictions too much because I'm, I'm never good at those. But I think in terms of like when you look at adoption, which is really what price is derived from, I think that what we've really seen is just an exponential growth in DeFi and NFTs and just the entire ecosystem. And as the entire ecosystem grows and as more and more of the projects within those ecosystems start using Chainlink, whether that's price feeds, VRF, Keeper, uh, cross-chain, all these different products, I think that we'll see Chainlink being recognized more as an enabler of blockchain applications and different smart contracts. And so I think that over time, you know, it'll, it'll fly under the radar less and will be more widely recognized as being a core piece of decentralized infrastructure. Because I think that Chainlink isn't like a, is not a user-facing application. You're never going to go on Chainlink.com and use an application like that. It's going to be background infrastructure, a bit like Ethereum, but even less user-facing, where it's really Chainlink users are smart contract developers. And then those smart contract developers have the users. And so when an application gets adopted, it's usually the application that gets the most attention. But I think over time, the trend powering these applications will more than likely become abundantly clear. And I think that we'll get more, so to speak, like mainstream uh, kind of traction and more, more recognition for Chainlink and the ecosystems that it enables effectively. So it's really, you know, it's hard to give any definitive answer just because it's future facing, but I think that we'll get a lot more recognition as people connect the dots, so to speak, and see that basically the entire ecosystem is uh, powered by Chainlink Oracles. Well, I got to agree with you on that one. And honestly, some of the biggest corp corporations in the world are purely business to business or work in the back end, and they don't even deal with any retail customers or uh, you know front facing customers or anything like that. So I fully agree with you on that one. So. so 
I know we don't want to talk price really, and, and there's no need for super predictions. And I've gotten a number of questions in the DM. I'm going to start asking them. But before we do that, this is the time, guys. Uh, we've got more than 300 people listening in here to Chainlink God. Again, thank you to Chainlink God. Uh, just the the ultimate in uh, in alpha drops and, and information. And, and thank you again for spending time with us. I know the community is, is very happy to hear from you. I'm getting a lot of that. Um, so if you guys want to come up and ask questions or have a question, uh, shoot a request, raise your hand. I'll uh, I'll invite you up. And in the meantime, let me take a question I've got for you. Uh, someone is curious, Chainlink God, about how you feel about the Chainlink held wallets that continue to sell tokens to fund network development. Has this annoyed you by any of the price action over the last few months? I think with that aspect, I think I've written about it in the past, but I think what we're really seeing is basically the bootstrapping of the Chainlink ecosystem. And so what we're, what we're really seeing is that the goal is to accelerate Chainlink's network effects to the greatest amount of degree, and that doesn't necessarily come for free. And so that, that includes funding these different price feed networks, uh, a bit like a block reward, what we kind of see with blockchains, but more, more specialized and focused on specific pieces of data that users need. And what we're really seeing as well is that, you know, the Chainlink team is growing massively, the Chainlink Labs team. And so it, now it's hundreds of people and each specialized building out these different products, being uh, different ecosystems and different companies and different enterprises effectively become chain linked. And so I think that really what it comes down to is if you, you got to determine if you're a short term speculator or term investor. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with either of those, but both have a very different perspective of how a treasury fund would be used effectively. And so what it's really optimized right now is for pure growth. And you look at the largest companies in the world and they're constantly losing revenue because they're purely focused on growth. Because once you achieve a level of growth, then you're able to effectively provide the greatest services at the lowest cost for people. And that's not the company-oriented approach, but with Chainlink, because Chainlink is a decentralized protocol effectively, then you know Chainlink Labs is effectively a development firm uh, fueling the growth. And so I, I think of it a lot like a Red Hat in terms of like Linux where Linux is an open source software and that adoption is kind of fueled by Red Hat helping enterprises adopt it. And so I think we're really seeing the same thing with Chainlink. Interesting. Um, okay, so I'm gonna go to, I'm gonna bring you up Hudson Jameson to, to ask the first question. Uh, and as you connect Hudson, the, the floor is yours uh, to ask Chainlink out a question. Hello. I'm Hudson. Um, I am an advisor to Chainlink, and I had a question that I haven't heard a ton about, but I was wondering if Chainlink God may have an opinion. So MEV, major extractable value, as it's now called, it used to be called minor extractable value, has been kind of a hot topic the past year where uh, miners can extract value from front-running and sandwiching transactions. And knowing that Chainlink oracles produce a lot of data on chain, that can be potentially front ran or maybe they send like a price feed that the miners see is coming and then they can do things to manipulate that and reorder transactions. Uh, do you see that as how big of a problem do you see that? And what do you think is being done about that, if anything? Yeah, that's a good question. Thanks, Hudson. I think that's really the long term kind of approach of chain, like not specifically for uh, front running. Uh, Oracle updates, but just in general for the ecosystem is really Chainlink FSS or fair sequencing services, which is really the large focus where you have a decentralized network ordering transactions 
which are encrypted beforehand, ordered, and then decrypted effectively. So that, that's more of like a, a layer two uh, implementation that we could see on Arbitrum and more of like a layer one application solution to prevent MEV, uh, specifically malicious MEV, from affecting these protocols. I think with Oracle updates, it's kind of one of those things where it's a little tricky to mitigate. I think there is a potential to use something like a private channel to a miner in order to basically fuel those, uh, send those updates on chain without going through the public mempool so they can't be seen by miners or by uh, flashbots in, in any sense. But I think there's different considerations there determining on how how reliable it is to send updates on chain because you know you can't miss an Oracle update because some piece of a, a private channel went down or something. So it's it's not a simple solution to solve. And I think it's something that could grow grow in a sense that it, need, it needs to be mitigated in some sense. And I think that long-term, a lot of people are betting on FSS or some other kind of fair sequencing solution for that. But I think right now, what we're really seeing is that a lot of it is reputation-based on the Chainlink nodes. So those Chainlink nodes don't extract MEV themselves because they would effectively destroy the rep their uh, reputation and therefore revenue. But in terms of external bots, I think something like Flashbots could potentially be used to kind of uh, just avoid the public mempool altogether. Thanks so much. And thanks for putting this on, y'all. It was a good discussion. Thanks, Hudson. Thanks, Hudson, for a great question and for uh, listening. Let's go to our next question. And we'll bring up uh, BotPaw1. Botpaw, the floor is is yours. Thanks for thanks for joining us, and Chainlink God is here for you. Um, just had a quick question um, about uh, um, keepers and uh, some comments that Andre had made. I, I, I never really fully understood the relationship between Andre's project and Chainlink keepers, but his recent comments seem to imply that he was unhappy with, with some of the interactions. Can you comment on that at all? Yeah, I don't have the full context there of what the communication was between Chainlink and Andre. I'm, I'm figuring it's some kind of miscommunication, but I'm not, and I can't speak on anything definitive. What I can say is that Keepers have kind of been a concept that have existed for a little while. We saw Keepers and MakerDAO for their liquidations have existed for, I think, 2017 when they were using them. So Chainlink is effectively like an evolution of the Keeper design as a whole. And so... I believe they were working with Andre, and I'm not entirely sure what happened there. But in general, Chainlink Keepers kind of takes a very different approach through a more round-robin approach of selecting nodes so that there isn't a priority gas auction wars of nodes trying to compete for the ward raising costs for users, which was kind of a, a problem seen with previous Keeper solutions. So, yeah, I'm not entirely sure what happened. I hope that relationship gets rekindled, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what the miscommunication was there. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Bapa. And, uh, you know, just from my own opinion, watching sort of Andre, it's been interesting because sometimes it, it it's felt like he was fully on board with Chainlink and behind the project. And then sometimes it seems like he's sort of uh, not a fan and then you don't really know when it's right, real or not. So uh, just an interesting uh, economy. We're going to go to uh, Daniel next. But before that, I want to ask another question that someone has sent in to the messages. And so Chainlink God, uh, APASIC3030 asks, where do QNT and Link stand relative to each other? Are Link CCIPs essentially trying to do the same thing as QNT? Yeah, I think 
Q&T, which is Quant, I think that's very much focused more on kind of permissioned off-chain agreements between businesses. And so that's kind of what their overledger is focused on is more of being like an API gateway. So it's kind of like two things, like a just more uh, multi-chain Infura effectively plus off-chain agreements run by a counterparty. And so what I kind of see with CCIP is that it's very much more optimized for public blockchains. So bridging different DeFi applications together, allowing DeFi applications to send messages to other DeFi applications and allow users to send tokens plus commands across multiple blockchains. So you can use CCIP to basically be like a cross-chain yield aggregator in a sense, or any other kind of cross-chain interaction where a user just stays on one chain and they get to interact with every other chain. So it's not so much like a, um, an uh, API gateway or for more permissioned off-chain agreements, but it's more strictly cross-chain messaging using this decentralized infrastructure. So in a sense, I kind of see them being more complementary where you can use CCIP with uh, uh, overledger quant agreements, but I think they're kind of in slightly different domains. Got it. Uh, okay, we're gonna go to uh, Daniel Shapiro. We're gonna bring you up now. And at the same time, guys, if you have a question, just request and we'll bring you up and you can speak with Chainlink God himself. Uh, right now, we got more than 300 people in here. Thank you guys again for joining us and thanks to Chainlink God, go for it. Uh, Daniel, the floor is yours. Hey, CLG. Um, thanks for doing this. Been following you a long time. And just thanks for uh, everything you do. Um, my question is regarding uh, collateral with staking. Obviously, the collateral is in the form of the link token. Um, you know, we've seen it's been vol very volatile at times. I mean, ignoring the post ICO drop of 89%, it's dropped somewhere between 68 to 75% four times. And even with something like Bitcoin with over $1 trillion market cap, um, maybe we just saw it drop 50%. So do you think that, I guess, with respect to, um, I guess, the volatility of the collateral, do you think that, like, in the SLA agreements, there will be some, like, defined, like, over-collateralization requirement depending on the contract? And I guess, like, the length of time of the collateral contract? Um, and also, like, let's say... So it's like, you know, like a long, it's like a futures contract. It's like three months long. Um, and the price of link appreciates in that time. Do you think you'll, you'll be able to withdraw link um, out of, I guess, like, or like withdraw collateral from um, your like staking position? Um, so just thoughts on that. And um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's a couple different answers because it really depends on what the users want for their agreement and what kind of level of protection and risk that they're willing to accept and what, what protection they want to pay for. So, you know, I think that with Chainlink staking or explicit staking being designed to be super linear, it's effectively easy to have a, you know, a moderate amount of stake securing a large amount of value, given that the number of nodes are high enough to get the quadratic effect. So I think that, you know, some contracts may optimize to be fully over collateralized. Others may choose to be uh, partially not fully collateralized but are protected by other mechanisms, whether that's uh, highly reputable chain link nodes who have a large amount of future fee opportunity who don't want to jeopardize that revenue and are running other services and other networks where they also have a lot of links staked and locked out of exposure to link. And I think that, you know, it's kind of a range of options that you want to do, but I think that, I think there is a potential for there to be like a contract for difference agreements where either node operators or users can stake a certain amount of link, like $1,000 of link, and at the end of the period, they can withdraw $1,000 of a link 
plus whatever the fee was generated, thereby selling their risk of volatility to another party who wants to either uh, speculate on Chainlink. So effectively, I think there's a lot of different approaches that could be taken. A hackathon project from secure data links, basically along those lines where you could sell your volatility risk to someone else, or you can effectively have it being over collateralized, or you can layer on other layers of security, trusted hardware, zero knowledge proofs, reputation based, revenue based. So it's really like a, it's like a buffet. And then the users ultimately choose what, what security mechanisms do they want to secure their agreement. And as the value of their agreement goes up, they can change those parameters over time, whether that be additional stake or additional high quality nodes or paying those nodes more revenue for a greater opportunity cost of being malicious and et cetera. So I think it's ultimately what, what, what the users really want at the end of the day, but it's a good question. Thanks, Daniel, for the question. Uh, we appreciate it. And let's go, let's bring up to the stage next, uh, Linksman77 uh, for your question. Thanks again, Daniel, for that great question. The uh, floor is yours, Sir Goshi. Linksman, go All for right, it. thanks, thank you. Uh, all right, Chain Like God, uh, I just wanted to say thanks for everything you do, like everyone else has. But uh, my question today was, um, did you get a chance to check out the Link Pool update last week when, when they announced it? Uh, there was a couple things on there. One, um, it did say staking coming soon. Thoughts on that? And uh, the second one, uh, there was a part where they showed like four different pools and it seemed like the higher pools was like the link pool owners and the, you know, I was like a 7% and then a 6%. I was wondering if that was like, you know, if you had link pool tokens, that that's your pool, you got link pool, you can stake, you get higher APY. And then those other ones, I was wondering if perhaps those were maybe, uh, you know, pools that you could uh, stake without link pool tokens, but uh, just your take on, on the whole update there. Gotcha. Yeah, I saw I saw a little bit. I didn't dive deep into it, but I've seen the work that they've been doing. That's been pretty awesome. I think staking things soon. I think they're always going to say that. I don't think they necessarily have a strict timeline, being like a kind of an independent uh, company in the Chainlink ecosystem. But from my understanding of how staking on Link Pool would work, is that the L the LPL token effectively is like an access token for staking on Link Pool's nodes. Effectively, so you would need some portion of LPL in order to stake on those nodes. And with there being different pools, what it seems like, um, from my understanding, is that link pool would be like a mark for different nodes to list themselves. So different nodes are going to generate different revenue and have different staking requirements. So it, it's really going to be like a diversity of options to some nodes may have less stake and therefore higher APY, less proven, and could be uh, malicious and slash sometime in the future, while higher reputable nodes that already have a lot of stake on them probably will have a little bit lower APY will be lower risk so it's all it's like a selection of risk reward ratios and you can really choose the risk that you want to basically uh, optimize for and so i think the lpl is specifically for uh, link pool operated nodes but if i'm wrong link eric will let me know on that one all right cool thanks a lot i appreciate it yeah thanks for coming on Thanks for the question, Linksman. And uh, we're going to bring up Joe Sand next. But before that, I've got a great question to kind of further that question. And this comes from Based Oracle. How might we be able to stake with Chainlink God's node when staking is live? Will there be a CLG ICO that we'll need to procure in order to stake with his neat node? <laughs> That's a good question. Technically, I already minted a CLG token, one of them like two or three years ago. There's only one of them, and I own the single one. But regardless, I think that. In the future, 
I'm not necessarily operating a node because that's a bit of like a full-time position. You need to be like a like a DevOps engineer uh, if you're running it yourself because it's you know it's mission critical infrastructure. I think what I could potentially do in the future is run like a managed node on link pool where I would have access to the node and the private key, but the infrastructure itself would be managed basically by uh, either link pool or like AWS effectively. So I think there is potential in the future to delegate to a CLG node, but I don't think there's going to be a CLG ICO anytime soon. Sorry on that. Hey, Chainlink God, <laughs> All right, I, that. I, have, I have something to say. If you turn that into an NFT, I'll give you 100 ETH right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Didn't, didn't listen, not, not selling. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay, let's bring up uh, another question. JM Prod is coming up. And before you ask your question, JM, just quickly, I got a question from uh, the audience in my DMs asking you, CLG, does Ergo compare to Chainlink? Ergo. So I th if I'm thinking about it right, Ergo is the blockchain, but they have like Oracle pools on Ergo. I might be getting the terminology wrong there, but effectively they want to do more of like this ranking permissionless design but it doesn't really take into account data quality and the ranking design doesn't really improve data quality at all because it's, you know, you need to have like a reputation framework for determining uh, the quality of the nodes and the quality of their data sources and just allowing anybody to join or, you know, having a multi-tier design doesn't necessarily ensure that the data quality is accurate or that the nodes will be reliable because there isn't necessarily an Oracle framework. So as far as I know, there's not really any users using that, but, you know, I guess time will tell on that. All right. Uh, thank you. And that's for you, Al Paroli. Thank you uh, for the question. We'll move to the floor is yours. Hey, CLG, uh, I wanted to quickly ask about your opinion on the Alliance project. Um, they have heavy integrations with financial institutions and Chainlink, and they're also building a product with Quant currently. Um, so would love to hear your opinion on that ecosystem. Thank you. Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't really looked into Alliance Block much, really. So I don't really have a, I don't have like an educated opinion about it, really. So I can't, I can't provide much context on there, unfortunately. Okay, thanks for, thanks for uh, posting this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the question. Thank you for that, Joe. We brought up uh, for the next question, crypto uh, law review. The uh, the floor is your. Hey, Linkies. Thank you so much. Obviously, Chainlink is the bleeding edge of crypto, like crypto's crypto. And with the mission to oracleize all the things, uh, the question is the following. So building on what Chainlink God said, that setting up a link node is really a full-time job, needs DevOps experience. Are there projects within the Chainlink ecosystem that are basically... Um, targeting folks without startup capital who are going to link fill the world. Um, thinking about um, applications beyond, of course, price feeds and financial, but much more generally. Yeah, it's, it's, I think if you're talking in terms of location, Chainlink does have different programs for like uh, developer experts who you don't necessarily need infrastructure experience, but you want to help projects become Chainlink, you can become like a developer expert. You can become a, like an advocate and throw meetups around the around the world. We've seen a lot of different one of those, especially during SmartCon. Saw a bunch of those, and there's different like ambassador uh, type roles where kind of you just help educate the community. So even if you don't necessarily have like a technical background or like deep experience in running a you know a mission critical infrastructure, I think there's still a role in the sense that you can help educate and you could effectively get uh, you can get help with uh, from like Chainlink Labs, basically putting these events together 
and help educating people effectively, which, you know, it really goes a long way because you increase education, you increase the net of people who can basically help grow and help build Chainlink and help build Chainlink applications. So I think even if you're not like developer or technical oriented uh, too much, I think there's still kind of a role for you to help kind of grow the ecosystem as a whole. Thank you. A follow-up, if I may. Um, with all the big tech integrations, Amazon and so forth, do you know if any big tech players are basically going to have um, essentially what amounts to like a starter pack for a technically inclined but non-crypto uh, native audience to set up chain link infrastructure of whatever form, shape? Yeah, that's, that's actually what the uh, what AWS Amazon kind of announced at SmartCon was the, uh, the chain link quick start where you could effectively one-click deploy a Chainlink node where it would set up all the Amazon infrastructure that you would need for a Chainlink node. Now, you would still need to manage that over time, but effectively sets up all the security policies, all the redundancies at multiple geographic locations, and basically automates a lot of the, the setup of mission-critical infrastructure. So you just have to plug in the APIs that you want to connect to smart contracts, and I think that those kind of providers, which uh, LinkPool kind of also provides, I think we'll see more and more of cloud providers and service providers offering that. And I think we'll see a lot of enterprises and uh, different data providers basically taking advantage of that where they know their infrastructure, but they don't necessarily know blockchain and decentralized oracles or you know what the security nuances are there. So I think that's, that'll be a large help when that kind of AWS quick start launches and more and more data providers and individual developers and NeatNote get access to this uh, quick start effectively framework. Thank you. Oracleized all the things, peace. Absolutely, thank you. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, Crypto, a lot of you for that. Uh, we are going to bring up next, uh, let's bring up Chase Coins uh, to ask his question. And uh, in the quickly ask a question we have from the, uh, from the messages here, uh, stonks.eth asks, what role will Link have in storage through platforms on IPFS, Stork, or SIA? And do you see the storage platform te tokenomics growing with the advent of NFTs? That's a good question. I'm not sure in terms what we kind of see with like Filecoin and Chainlink, it allows like bi-directional communication because decentralized storage networks and blockchains. So we see things that could be created like a, a decentralized storage provider insurance or Chainlink monitors and reports back to a smart contract. We could see things like NFT verification mechanisms where you use Chainlink to basically verify that some image or file or video or whatever exists on IPFS or Filecoin or wherever. And it actually has like a proper CID that's stored in a smart contract. So, and any of those types of services would require the use of the link token to pay for those Oracle services. So, you know, we're not necessarily going to see Chainlink being a decentralized storage network because that's not what it's for. But what we can see is, you know, these different storage networks being connected to smart contracts and other systems through, you know, a decentralized Chainlink Oracle network. So I think there's, I think there's a lot of potential synergies there. And I think that Filecoin and Chainlink just launched a, a grant program effectively for projects building using those two technologies. Okay, great. And uh, thanks for the question, stonks.eth. Uh, you're up here, Chase. The floor is yours. Hey, Michael. Hey, Danny. Thanks for hosting this. Uh, hey, CLG, Chase here. Um, I had a question with NFTs being hot right now. Could you dive into how Chainlink could grow to provide mission critical infrastructure for that ecosystem? And I'm just curious if you thought about any interesting use cases for dynamic NFTs. Yeah, uh, I think
Chainlink's a little slept on in that regard. I think there's the obvious use cases, which we've seen, you know, a lot of times multiple integrations that they use Chainlink VRF, whether that's for randomly assigning attributes to NFTs so that, that that can't be manipulated, plus randomly distributing NFTs so that process can't be manipulated. So you could basically prove the rarity of NFTs. And so, you know, that's that's a very like first step integration that we're already seeing seeing being used for a lot of NFTs at this point. I think a lot of the more interesting dynamic NFTs will uh-oh. Did it happen? Do we get rugged? Or is it just we almost, I think we almost got rugged. Are you here with us, CLG? Oh, no, I rugged CLG. You rugged him. Okay, hold on, guys. Uh, we made it really far without that happening, but we're back. Are you back, CLG? Hey, guys, can you hear me? Sorry, just, just uh, stopped working for a bit. Perfect. Yeah, I don't know why. No worries. No worries. I was actually, I was, uh, I had crossed my fingers. We made it an hour and a half, essentially, <laughs> yeah. without any issues. I think I think Jack got mad that you had dropped so much alpha, but <laughs> we have. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll let you take over again, and uh, we'll we'll move to. Uh, I'm not sure if you had a, a thought to finish, but we'll move to uh, the next question from uh, from Dylan. If not, yeah, yeah, that works. Um, all right, Dylan, the floor is. Thank you guys so much for having me, and I know everyone said it, but Jane, God, thank you so much for everything you do. Um, I wanted to ask a question, particularly about L1s. Um, and uh, so, like, just as we're coming into this, you know, DeFi summer 2021 AVAX, I guess, as you put it, uh, you know, it seems apparent to me, at least, I, I, I don't, I'm not an expert, but that we're going to be in a multi-chain world. And how do you see other L1 ecosystems progressing in the short term, like AVAX or Solana, as we're seeing? Uh, and how do you think that, how do you think they'll progress long term? And then how do you think that'll affect ETH? just honestly on, on both metrics as well. So uh, yeah, that's my question. Yeah, it's a good question. I think I think seeing a multi-chain world is kind of an inevitable reality. I think what I've always kind of thought of it is a bit like a power law distribution where it's probably always going to be concentrated Ethereum and then there'll be a tail of different chains optimized for different, uh, for different consensus algorithms, different levels of decentralization, security, different aspects. So I think that's what we're kind of seeing is people just beginning to explore other chains. A lot of people have been uh, priced out of Ethereum because L2s aren't exactly, well, uh, programmable generalized layer two rollups are still kind of on their way and eat two for a little while. But I think that even in those cases, there's still an opportunity for specific L1s to specialize in either specific geographic regions or specific niches and use cases that a more generalized blockchain L1 wouldn't necessarily be able to optimize for. And so I think that uh, things like Avalanche and Solana, Polygon, Phantom, these different networks, I think that they're probably almost always going to have their own niche ecosystem. And with these different uh, different subsidy programs, Chainlink Oracle's launching on them, they have the ability to kind of bootstrap their own um, like mini DeFi cosm compared to, like the, to the DeFi e- ecosystem on Ethereum. So it's almost like if you have a country, each L1 blockchain would be a specific city and Ethereum may be New York, but Avalanche may be Denver. You know, there's these different pockets of activity that are eventually connected through, you know, a freeway, you know, powered by Chainlink. So I think it's inevitable we'll see multiple blockchains, but I think we'll also see specialization in that aspect. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah, I I share a very similar viewpoint. I've always kind of thought that, yeah, it's kind of, I guess, the New York, as you put it, but there will be other things that kind of eat away at just some of the pie. Obviously, I'm not sure. I don't think anything will flip Ethereum anytime soon, but at least they'll, you know, slowly accrue some amount of market share. Uh, you know, maybe Solana becomes the 
faster trading platform or global settlement layer or something. And then Tezos, I've heard, is good for NFTs. I, I need to look more into that. But long story short, I agree. So thank you so much for, for answering my question, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there'll be plenty of competition in the future. For sure, for sure. Thank you, Dylan. We appreciate the great question. Let's uh, let's go. I've got little Uzi up here, uh, but give me a second before you ask your question. I want to take a question from my uh, DMs that was asked by uh, Canuck Link, and uh, he just wants to know your thoughts, COG, on Uniswap. Will they become a case study of how not to run a DAO DeFi protocol? Yeah, Uniswap's an interesting one. I think that they have a large treasury, and they're effectively have become almost like a slush fund where they'll fund initiatives that aren't really connected to the growth of Uniswap but more to the DeFi ecosystem as a whole. And so there's kind of like the VC dynamics behind that because the VCs who invested in Uniswap have the tokens and they've delegated to these student organizations, which are basically the same VCs, like a string controlled. So I think that Uniswap's an interesting case of a protocol that works and continues to work but has this governance token where it's like, it looks like it's stabilized, but then you kind of look under the covers and it's not necessarily the way you would expect it to be. So I think that in terms of DeFi governance, there's governance mechanisms that work and then there's Uniswap effectively. Okay, great. Uh, thank you for the uh, the great question, Connect Link. And now let's, uh, we've already got you up here, I am Pebble uh it's your chance to ask a question go for it uh yeah of course thanks guys uh so you know i'm a little bit new to this i've been following link for a while and holding it for a while um with all the recent like noise with uh ada cardano and their smart contracts coming out um you know i know it's completely different than ethereum and you know the link oracles but would you mind kind of just running us through real quick the, the difference uh between their smart contract oracles and link uh for some of us thanks yeah, so they have they have a couple different initiatives, but it really it hasn't been fully fleshed out, kind of like Cardano's ecosystem. You know, we kind of see things Wolfram Alpha, but that's essentially a centralized Oracle provider, and there really isn't much public information. There's different Oracle pools, but they don't necessarily take into consideration data quality. Really, a theme is that there isn't any time-tested infrastructure that they're necessarily building or providing. And so I think in the long term, Given that Chainlink's already blockchain agnostic and it works with every blockchain, I think that it's inevitable that Chainlink oracles will probably also be deployed on Cardano as well to power whatever applications that are running there effectively. So, you know, they may build some bespoke oracle solutions on Cardano, but they're not going to have the network of nodes, the network of users, the data quality, the time-tested security. The network affects the economies of scale or whatever else that Chainlink basically already provides and already has. So. I think it's it's almost like comparing Amazon to like a lemonade stand where like, yeah, technically they're both businesses, right? But they're not at the same scale and they're not at the same level of expertise or coordination effectively. So I think Chainlink Oracles will probably realistically just deploy and power Cardano applications on that network. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for the question, I am Pebble. And uh that now's uh, sort of the last chance, guys. If you're in the crowd, you joined us in the middle, joined us late, or been sitting thinking you have this one question, your chance is now to, to come up on stage. Just send a request, and we will uh, get you up here as long as Chainlink God has some time to, to spend with us. Uh, I'm going to ask a question while I wait to see there. I got a couple more. One is from uh, Ari, who asked me, uh, or asked you, excuse me, 
Uh, I was wondering what you think about the liquid staking announced by Bancor and the differences between the link pool approach um, from a retail staking standpoint. And I would just preface this as saying, I know we saw sort of a teaser about the V3 for Bancor, so maybe there's not a lot of information, but that's the question. Yeah, I imagine this one's not from Ari Jules, but you know, I think I think it's an interesting yeah. concept, but like there wasn't much technical detail implementation details. So it's really hard to say. The general concept is super fluid liquidity. So you're LPing on Bancor, earning fees there. Then you stake that LP token into Chainlink nodes and then earn fees there. But I think there's kind of questions to be remained of like how that's going to be implemented or what V3 really is and you know the differences it provides. So like at this point in time, it's really hard to say. Linkpool is specifically focused on Chainlink staking services and building infrastructure for uh, Chainlink nodes to effectively stake Link and offer uh, or borrow Link from other people effectively. But I think that Bancor, I think it's an interesting approach they're taking. I, I think it was like a community-driven initiative, but it kind of remains to see to see what happens because that would require a deep integration between Bancor and Chainlink effectively because they would need to rely on the security of of uh, basically the staking mechanism would have to rely on Bancor for that system to work effectively. So I think it kind of remains to see what happens there, but it's definitely an interesting concept and I love composability wherever it is. Yeah, and that, yeah, definitely was not from Mary Jules. <laughs> uh, so uh, one more from the DMs and this one uh, is from sort of research and operations out of Binance uh, USA Grant asks, do you, uh, what do you think about competitors like Band? Uh, where have they gone wrong when competing against Link? Yeah, so with Band, that one's an interesting story. So effectively, they take like a move fast and break things type approach, where they'll take a Chainlink product, implement a more centralized version of it, and then deploy that onto their chain. So really, Band, I've expressed this a lot, but if they're effectively a centralized Oracle service who kind of masquerades themselves as a decentralized network. So a couple of core issues is that Band's a blockchain, and they've kind of modified it to be an Oracle and some design uh, results where Band nodes can only connect to low-quality free open APIs. So to connect to premium APIs, they connect to a single centralized cloud server, all the nodes to one server, and then they fetch data through that server. So that's a centralized point of failure. To bridge data onto like Ethereum, they have a centralized relayer to send that data. So that's another centralized point of failure. The Band team owns 50% of the voting power on the network effectively. So that's another centralized point of failure. And so kind of like the list goes on there where they take the approach of moving fast, but they don't necessarily take data quality, mixing all these different sources together of varying quality and a lot of centralized points of failure. So I think that's really their approach, honestly, is to provide this more centralized uh, uh, approach to oracles, which really isn't the way to go. But then marketing it as something being decentralized and then having maybe, you know, saying, oh, we're working with Microsoft and Bloomberg, it's just really shady. So, you know, I, I've, I've tweeted about Panda a lot in the past, but I think that it's effectively a centralized Oracle service. And I've kind of, we've kind of seen what's happened with Oracleize and other centralized Oracles. Got it. Thank you. Uh, let's take one more. Uh, any hand raisers in the audience? I'm going to move to one more or I'll quickly take uh, a couple more. But from uh, from the messages, uh, Chainlink God, on-chain on data is basically the new oil. What's your vision of bringing derivative markets on-chain through Chainlink data? Can you see a future where there are limitless uh, markets such as local fuel price, prices and people can take long and shorts on it. And how far off do you see Chainlink providing 
these kind of uh, price feeds. And thank you for the question, Lucas. Yeah, 100%. I think we kind of see that with synthetics, at least in the initial implementation, where you have synthetic crypto, uh, different equities, different commodities, even synthetic oil, where you can get exposure. And uh, not sure if you can go short anymore, but you can definitely go long. And we see other protocols like Tracer, where they're deploying an Arbitrum, and they effectively allow you to create your own decentralized uh, derivatives markets using any Chainlink Oracle. So because Chainlink can connect any data feed, you can create a synthetic asset or a derivative of literally a uh, price point in the world. And interestingly, not just price points, any data points in the world. So if you wanted to go long on the number of followers Sergey has on Twitter, you know, if somebody else wants to go short on that, you know, you can create a market for that and, you know, create a tokenized version of that. So literally any data point that exists in the world that can be quantified can be brought on chain as a data point. And then that data point can then go power all these uh, different uh, protocols, whether it's for hedging or it's for speculation. And the, the speculators and the hedgers can be combined together to, perform, uh, to be connected into like a permissionless marketplace, all of which is like coordinated, executed using chain like Oracle. So I think in the future, we're going to see a lot, lot more data being brought on chain, particularly more scalable L1s and layer twos to enable really unique markets that allow people to basically speculate and hedge on anything in the world that they can really dream of. So I think there's a lot of opportunity and we've really only scratched the surface of what's really possible in this regard. Awesome. And thank you very much for the question, Lucas. Uh, and let's bring up one question from uh, the audience. We're going to bring up a, a link, Maureen. Uh, you are now connecting and the floor is yours. Uh, take it away. Hey, CLG. Um, I had a question about DIP and Chainlink, or yeah, DIP and Chainlink and their parametric insurance. Um, one time when Sergey was introducing it in one of his talks, he basically said, like, I keep coming back to it because it, uh, it doesn't have a token aspect. So I wanted to get your opinion on that. And um, I mean, it makes sense to me. Whereas, you know, if you could just put Link as collateral for feeding data about weather, you know, why would you need a token aspect for DIP? And then I guess further from that, um, like in general, do you see that with other projects too? Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the Chainlink token is really optimized for the purpose of bringing data on chain. But a lot of these other decentralized protocols have other parameters that need to be changed. If that's like a money market, you need to adjust borrowing and lending parameters. If it's derivatives, you need to choose which asset to list. If it's insurance, you need to onboard uh, insurance brokers and different clients and choose which data and basically have some kind of governance mechanisms for creating new products, uh, distributing those products, and effectively providing a way to effectively govern those ecosystems. And so Chainlink isn't a governance token. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a utility and it's a basically collateralization of the Chainlink network. But other decentralized applications often have their own tokens for governance and or for revenue capture to bootstrap their ecosystem and for subsidies, whether that's providing funding to a development team or that's more liquidity mining to basically bootstrap liquidity for a new marketplace. So I'm not entirely sure how DIP is being used, but that's usually how tokens are being used. So I think that most any application that could have a token will have a token and they'll have a competitive advantage against protocols that don't have a token effectively. All right, makes sense, appreciate it. Yep, absolutely. 
Thank you for that question, uh, Link Marine. And let me go to uh, this is a really good question uh, that I that I'm getting in the DMs. Uh, someone is wondering what you think about the dynamic between the rising value of of Chainlink and a protocol's willingness to use Chainlink to fetch data. Like, will this dynamic limit the upside of the token? I think that as the value secured, or as the value of there's kind of two aspects. There's the value of the protocols being used or using Chainlink effectively as the value of their application rises, both in terms of TVL and their governance token, then the security guarantees that they need by their Oracle network coincidentally also has to rise at the same time. And that's tied to the value of the link token effectively. So I think there's like a, a synergy nature between those two. And I don't think they conflict in any way, really. So I think that as the value of these applications rise, both TVL, both governance token, then so too will the security guarantees uh, need to be increased for the Oracle network. And a lot of the way to do that in the long term is to increase the amount of stake. And if the value of link increases, that's also additional as well. So it's it's really like one in the same where growth of the value of Chainlink applications is the growth of Chainlink itself effectively. So I think I could take on a couple more questions. Awesome. Yeah, wind down. And that's a, a great question. The last question for me, I'm going to give it to you, Danny, uh, is we have someone asking about, uh, they're just curious on your sort of, we talked about this earlier, sort of a little bit when it came to the politics. Uh, and so this question comes from Talahim, who asks, curious on your views on smart contract political use cases. Like, are is it possible to hold people accountable for promises? Oh, that's a good one. I think something that Sergey mentioned is uh, when you're running as a politician, your promises can basically be encoded as a smart contract, which when you get into office can then be executed as that same smart contract. And at the end of the term, you can see exactly which promises were actually executed and which weren't because it's all stored on chain effectively. So that, that's kind of an interesting one. I think there's also the aspect of voting where you can use something like Chainlink's Deco to, in a privacy preserving manner, verify the identity of voters and have them vote in a privacy preserving but yet verifiable manner at the same time. So I think that's a large opportunity for both, you know, small scale local elections plus large scale national elections as well. So I think that the you know, blockchain kind of gets shit on for not solving the, you know, kind of voting problems. But I think in an aspect, if you layer on different uh, off-chain services in addition to blockchain, I think there's a real potential for it. But I think in general as more government processes move on chain then there is a real opportunity to significantly increase the transparency of those processes. Fantastic. And now I'm going to throw it to Danny, who is still here, eagerly awaiting a chance to ask questions. I want to just take a, a second to thank you guys for sending in the questions. They've been fantastic. And for everybody that came up to ask questions. And of course, thank you, Chainlink. God, Danny, uh, have some fun. Yeah, thanks, everybody, for, for joining us. Um, we've been on for almost uh, close to two hours now. I really appreciate everybody staying with us. And uh, man, we're getting some serious alpha here. So thank you so much, Chainlink God, for all you've done uh, so far in this space. Um, so I have three quick questions for you. One of them is, do you know Sergey and Ari? So I don't necessarily know them personally, but I think I could say that we've all kind of formed around them as like a like a shelling point of like the leaders of the Chainlink ecosystem because every every project has some kind of figurehead, whether that's Uniswap and Hayden, Synthetics and Kane, uh, Ave and Stani. I think that's kind of Sergey and Ari 
really provide that chilling point for the Chainlink ecosystem. Gotcha. Uh, and the flipping occurred recently for you and Sergey, surpassing Sergey's followers. <laughs> How did you feel about that? Yeah, that, that was unexpected to, to, to say the least. I know that Sergey's not very active on social media. He's more coordinating things in the background while I shit post on Twitter all day and educate people. So, you know, there's that perspective, but at the same time, like it's, it's fucking Sergey. You know, I, I didn't expect that at all. <laughs> I completely understand. Yeah, that that must have been a pleasant surprise. Uh, who do you think is Satoshi? I think I don't have any names, but I don't think it was one person. I think it's very likely that it was a group of people, and maybe one or most of them had a private the private keys to like the to the initial blocks or the initial addresses that stored the mind Bitcoin. But I don't think it was necessarily any one person. I don't think it was Sergey per se. But I think there's a lot of prime candidates out there. And I think it's likely a group of early uh, cryptographers, Hal Finney and whatnot, who were already working on these different, you know, pre-crypto internet currencies that probably band together to create a more decentralized pseudo-anonymous currency. But they knew they couldn't just have a figurehead or a company behind because it wouldn't really work out in the long term. So I, I think it's probably like five, three to seven people, maybe. It's hard to say, but I don't think it was just one person. That, that seems unlikely to me. I completely agree. It's almost um, outside of our comprehensive thinking to to believe that one person could create an entire currency that's decentralized uh, that changes the world. Yeah, that's lasted an entire decade. It's it's pretty incredible. Uh, so shifting gears a little bit, completely outside of crypto, what are three things that you really enjoy outside of gaming and outside of blockchain, outside of, of uh, uh, crypto and gaming? I would say... Always, always learning new things, whether that's within crypto or outside of crypto. I'm always kind of looking and researching different concepts that kind of come across me because the same approach that I take to researching crypto, I take to researching other aspects of whether that's how the global financial economy works or how politics work in different aspects. So I'm always kind of constantly, constantly researching. But I think that for the most part, crypto has pretty much consumed my life <laughs> for the most part. So uh, that's pretty much where I focus the vast majority of my efforts, really. How many times have you hit refresh in a, in a given week? <laughs> Probably like a million times, realistically. <laughs> we're, we're all there. Don't worry about it. Uh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, great, great questions. I think this is a great place uh, to wrap up. We, you know, we we respect your time, Chainlink. God, you did such a fantastic job of uh, not completely breaking Twitter spaces with all that alpha. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to just, uh, on behalf of uh, Investorly and behalf of Danny, and I am sure I can speak for most in the community, thank you for taking this time to spend uh, with all of us. Uh, we really appreciate everybody listening, joining us. I want to throw it to you, Chainlink God, to just give us some final thoughts um, or also let people know exactly uh, best places. I know you've got the podcast now on Spotify. You've got uh, you know so many different areas where we can get information from you, and we just want to make sure that nobody... Uh, misses that. With that being said, I also pinned uh, the smart contract uh, thread that you put together uh, right up at the top. Click into that and read that right after this. Make sure to look at the top of the spaces and you could find that. Um, and then just find some final words from you, Chainlink God. Yeah, th thanks for having me on. I always uh, always appreciate when I'm given a, given a stage to kind of explain different aspects of Chainlink and crypto and whatnot. So uh, I appreciate all of the uh, all the followers and all the people who listen to the content I give, you know, the reason I post content and educate people 
is because there are people who are willing to listen and specifically people who have more of like an open-minded uh, position or are willing to learn. You know, if you haven't solidified your position one way or another, but are willing to kind of change your perspective based upon new information. So if you want to learn more about Chainlink and really just blockchains in general, I would say one of the best places is our smart content blog. So that's the Crypto Oracle and I. We write some different, uh, they're a lot more in-depth, but a lot different uh, different pieces about Chainlink, about what's the value of tokens in general, how do blockchains and oracles work, those kinds of things. So that, that's like, that's the most pure alpha you can find. And I've also been doing some more podcasts with Crypto Oracle as well on, on the Chainlink God podcast, which is on Spotify, where we've also explored like the crypto economics of security, different products, and even brought on PMC Maguan to talk about uh, MEV and potential mitigations of that. So I'm always going to continue educating on Twitter and across these different forums. Uh, I write a lot more content than I ever expected I would, <laughs> to say the least, but I'm happy to educate and kind of help uh, help uh, shift that I've kind of collected over the past couple of years. And I don't I don't plan to quit anytime soon. So yeah, if, if, if anyone ever has any questions, then just feel free to ping me on Twitter. I get pinged different things and, you know, I, I try to help answer where I can, but as my account kind of grows in size, it gets a little, a little more difficult to scale up, but I always try to help where I can. So kind of just once again, thanks Michael and Danny for kind of hosting this and having me on. And thanks for all the listeners. I'm always, uh, always appreciative that people are willing to listen to what I have to say. And that, uh, that really wraps us up. That's a great way to go out. I want to finish as you guys are leaving the spaces with one uh, quick comment. Actually, Chainlink God himself that he shared with me months ago. He may not even recall. Um, but just before I do that, I just want to, again, thank everybody for listening. Please continue to engage. Obviously, you will with Chainlink God. But, you know, with us, and if you have questions and you can't get through to, let's say, Chainlink God, but you can get through to us, make sure to message us, uh, subscribe to our newsletter, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to put together more spaces for everybody. We definitely have another space coming on Thursday night with uh, Danny Ukes, uh, uh, Dan Verno about the NFT space. If you'd like to learn more there, uh, please join us again there. And finally, just to kind of show you the type of individual that I've found in my experience uh, that Chainlink God is, as you all have heard, uh, I take away from this conversation, uh, him saying, if you have Chainlink, uh, you'll be winning regardless. So just remember that guys. and. It was about three, four months ago when I was writing uh, one of our first newsletters around Chainlink. And I asked Chainlink God if he could sum up Chainlink with sort of one sentence and paragraph. And I just want to uh, leave you uh, with what he told me uh, to put in our newsletter. He described it as by combining the immutability, transparency, and audibility of blockchain networks with the connectivity, privacy, and scalability of Chainlink oracles, we as a society can maximize the amount of value humans can collectively generate, thereby raising the quality of life for everyone. We are all in this together. It's the best way to go out. Thank you, Chainlink God. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's great. We'll see you, we'll see you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Okay, let's go.